Brady. This is Club Hell. Thanks for coming, kids. Then, Hello, this is Notes from the Back Row. A cinema podcast of commentary, questions, answers, dreams, fears, joy rides, hell rides, and so much more. So strap in for a veritable cinematic Coney Island of the mind. Hello, and welcome to Notes from the Back Row. It is me, Jenna Ipcar, and I'm here today with Veronica. Hi. We always, I feel like we, nobody ever wants to do the intros, and I think it's because we're all, like, kind of bad at intros. We all do that carnival barker voice. How dare you? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I do it too. I'm like, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Well, look, I am just so excited to tell our listening audience all about Notes from the Back Row, which is a podcast that is really more like a news magazine. And I'm, I'm sure that you right now, listener, are thinking, what the hell? Where's Hoser Horror? <laughs> but, um, get out of here. Get yeah, Get out. it. Number one, get out. Number two, uh, <laughs> y- you wouldn't, I'm not surprised because Hoser Horror, Dan and Carlo have been going real strong in, in keeping this podcast alive over the summer while Veronica and I... The people, uh, other people on this website, um, I don't know. We've been doing a bunch of stuff, man. It's been a rough year. So a busy year. Let's put it that yeah, way. Yeah, and I mean, and for me, I'm just always going to be more of a writer. So the podcast, I've been writing a lot for the site. Um, Not this year. I definitely year. write more than- <laughs> I definitely write more than Carlo and Dan. That's very God. true. She does. She writes a lot of articles. Actually, one of the articles on back-row.com that you can read is her um, Double in a Dinner, with which is a double feature yeah. movie that, that Veronica has hand-included, uh, handmade <laughs> recipes for food that you can make with your hands. Whole bunch of hands involved. Yeah, and it is of Moonstruck, and I love you to death because she loves making fun of Italians. So here we are. Right. <laughs> I I know that when I sent you that for edits, I made a comment about like if the jokes about Italians are too gratuitous, you can cut them out. <laughs> We're both from New but York. They're all still in there. We're so, both yeah, from right, New York. It's legal too. for us to do this. Um, <laughs> I also wrote an article pretty recently called uh, "I Watched It So You Don't Have to" for Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer which is continuing one of our, um, you know, famous uh, columns on our website of I Watched It So You Don't Have To. Check those out if you have not. They are the most popular yes. thing on our website uh, other than... By, by quite a margin. Don't tell the listeners that. But um, other than <laughs> our podcast... <laughs> other than our podcast notes from the back row, which you are listening to. And again, this is more like a, like a news magazine kind of podcast where every week we were, were meant to... Uh, shake it up uh, and again Hoser Horror has been rocking it and it's awesome quite frankly you should listen to uh, the last episode a fruet of duet yes. <laughs> spasms and, and blue monkey fantastic job Carlo and Dan great guys great guys but today we're talking about not great guys we are talking about not great guys we're taking one of our columns uh, which is uh, the back row book club which we've been we've ignored a little bit this year too, um, <laughs> and we're going to talk about a book called Hellraisers by Robert Sellers, which came out in two thousand eight, 
And I read this a couple years ago and Veronica just finished reading it. And what this is, is a book about, um, well, you know what, Veronica, why don't you tell everyone? So it's about, uh, it's a nonfiction book about four famous men, Oliver Reed, Richard Burton, Richard Harris, and Peter O'Toole, and how they behaved throughout their entire lives. I was going to say careers, but it started so young. And basically how they were sort of, you know, wild hellions who were always drinking and causing mischief and, uh, and how they got people to put up with them, which is amazing to me. Um, but yeah, it, it follows each of them from childhood to death and it's quite the read. Yeah. I mean, so this, it's pretty much what you're expecting, right? (laughs) (laughs) yeah if anyone like thought these dudes were angels i mean we're not shattering any illusions here no i mean this is this is a whole i mean they're all the angry young men of of britain as it were um look i mean like i read this book because i all i wanted was lurid details of outrageous drunk stories and that's 100 percent all this is Uh, essentially um the author uh, robert sellers just sort of weaves together the biographies of these four men uh and mostly it's just like a lot of gossip it's all their drinking stories and and all of the details of of what they got up to and he even says as much in his intro he's like enjoy it they did so (laughs) and there is some overlap a lot of them some would work together at points it seemed like richard harris and peter o'toole met up pretty frequently um oh shoot now i forgot who somebody gave a speech one of them one of the richards gave a speech at one of the i think the other richards funeral uh and talked about he like quoted henry the eighth about like you know let's let us sit and tell sad stories of the deaths of kings and you know broke down and blah 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 that would, um, that would definitely be the death of burton i would imagine yeah as i said it i was like i don't think it was harris um, I think Harris was the one crying. And I, Jenna and I have discussed this book because Jenna was the one who told me to go get it. And uh, I I feel like I liked Oliver Reed way more before I read this. He's the only one who I really, like, the whole time was like, go fuck yourself. Um, and with most of them, there is just such a sadness in in a couple of the stories. Richard Burton especially where I had a very negative image of Richard Burton. I just always heard of him as this kind of like wife-beating alcoholic. And the stories about him and Elizabeth Taylor's marriage are so upsetting. It's like, it is, oh my God, it is, it's unreal that this is how humans behaved. I, I, I can't. I guess they must have enjoyed it on some level. I don't know why you would stay with someone for that long, but they were just so abusive to each other and nobody, nobody in that relationship comes out looking okay. I definitely had a little bit more of um, a a well-rounded view of Richard Burton after I read this because I'm also less familiar with both the Richards' work, to be honest. Uh, Peter O'Toole and Oliver Reed... You know, I they're in some of my favorite movies. 
Richard Burton was always someone who was like, oh, yeah. I never thought he was as attractive as I was always kind of surprised when people like, oh, yeah, he's, he was so gorgeous. He was such a sex symbol in the 60s. And I guess that line from Austin Powers is true where not that he had bad teeth where the mom's like in Britain in the 60s, you could be a sex symbol and still have bad teeth. We're like, that's kind of how I feel about <laughs> Richard Burton, where I'm like, I guess in the 60s in Britain, you looked like that and you were like so handsome, you know. But he's like a perfectly ad- a swagger. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. Remember when we walked past Matt Damon filming in London and we both like had to walk back because we just thought it was an average dude. <laughs> yes. That's almost how I feel about <laughs> Richard Burton. <laughs> so it's just like, I don't know. He just struck me as such an average guy. Nothing. But I do. I actually want to kind of go back and see some of the stuff I had watched with him. Um, that I just didn't really appreciate or might not have appreciated because I didn't, yeah, he never grabbed me the way like O'Toole did. It's kind of funny to me that then hearing him at his lowest is what got you more interested in him. (laughs) (laughs) No. Well, I mean, I, I guess it filled in a lot of blanks that I didn't know were blanks. There were, or I guess it, you know, kind of, overcame an image I already had um and again it's like there was just nothing I saw of him that I loved either the movies themselves you know it wasn't Lawrence of Arabia it wasn't the brood it wasn't the devils it wasn't the ruling class these like they he wasn't in anything where I was like oh my god this is my favorite movie um which is part of it certainly part of it same with Richard Harris I like knew him I I didn't really have any any opinion on him Richard Burton you always heard stories about him and Elizabeth Taylor um and I read a bunch of Debbie Reynolds books because she wrote a bunch and there's a lot of stories of him being a drunken asshole but it's also coming from the perspective of like Elizabeth Taylor's best friend you know so it sounds like it, it sounds like it was much more of a equal relationship in how terrible they were were towards each other it wasn't you know, one-sided. Well, I have to say that, you know, this book, um, it's really just more drinking tales. So it's funny because and we have a whole bunch to say about like the nuances, but there's really not much nuance <laughs> in this book, at least the way that it's presented. I mean, for the most part, it's, it's just, uh, you know, there is some, there's obvious like sim- sympathy uh, for these guys to a degree, like they give enough detail about their lives. And, and a lot of them had really messed up childhoods. Um Yes. And so, you know, but then really at the end of the day, I mean, like stuff like, I mean, I just like what I'm trying to remember to think of all the stories. There's stories in this where I still I still think about them because it's stuff where it's like literally all the tales that you expect. It's like the definition of the rowdy, um, drunken jet set lifestyle. (laughs) You know, these guys were rock stars before rock stars even, uh, you know, copyrighted the term. Peter O'Toole would literally just, you know, go out for one pint and wake up in a different country. Uh, Same thing with Richard Harris. One of my favorite stories in this book was how uh, O'Toole and Harris were, they were doing um, a play together. That's the other thing. These guys were all doing like theater and a lot of these stories are about them drinking in between like like, passing out in the wings, right? Before doing like Camelot or something, you know, like these aren't like, you know, rock and roll plays so much be like between Shakespeare but there was one uh, where uh, the two of them, Peter O'Toole and, and um, Richard Harris, were doing a play, and they had like a fifteen-minute break 
in between acts or so, or something. And then so they would go out to the pub across the street from the theater. And they would get as hammered as they could. And then until literally the stagehand had to run into the pub and be like, you guys are literally going to be on stage saying your first line in, in five minutes. <laughs> like, right. so then the two of them ran out. Um, they got after being getting completely smashed and, and, you know, doing whatever they were doing. They ran across the street to the point where they had to stumble into the theater and Peter, uh, or rather Richard Harris had like, as he was stumbling back into the theater, tripped and then fell on stage and then fell into the, the front row, <laughs> like in his attempt to get out and say his first line. And so apparently he fell into two little old ladies who then were like, oh, my God, look how drunk he is. Richard. And then Richard Harris replied, you know, if you think I'm drunk, wait till you see O'Toole, you know, make his entrance. <laughs> so there's so many stories yeah. like this or like you learn about how like Oliver Reed. I mean, he is a nightmare, I have to say. I, Oliver Reed as an yeah, actor, cause... I love him because he's a nightmare, but that's exactly right. who he was in real life. <laughs> Yeah. And even, you know, you mentioned them, a lot of them having, you know, very sad childhoods or very, it's like a, a lot of them, three of the four, you guys get to guess which ones, three of the four grew up in incredible poverty. And Oliver Reed was fine. Oliver Reed, his family had money. His family, it's not even like, oh, they were solidly middle class. He was fine. So hearing his you know, hearing his exploits were always just a little bit more annoying because you don't even have the excuse of like, yeah, I mean, they grew up in poverty that was so insane. Peter O'Toole's dad would like disappear with the money and just go drinking and his mom would be raising five kids in Ireland with like nothing, you know, which is, I have to say at least he wasn't as bad as that. At least he, you know, I don't know. It's such a funny thing to like hear them talk about or to have to read about their relationships and just he Peter O'Toole's first wife was an actor in her own right and it it's no surprise to me that that was one of the first marriages to fall apart because you know, she had her own career. She's not even someone who was like, "Yeah, I'm willing to sit around and like try to find a way to struggle through this with you. She was like, all right, I'm beautiful and a good actor, so I'm going to go do my own thing. And he, like, passed out in the wings in one of her plays. People had to step over him to, like, get on stage. I guess I'm happy that we sort of live in a world where there's a lot of talent, and if someone is behaving like that, there's always someone else who can take their place and do the same thing. I know people still give a lot of leeway to men usually that they think are geniuses but if someone was like stumbling around drunk on a broadway stage i think at this point people would be like they're not worth it we can find someone else yeah so i mean like let's kind of talk about that because here we are two um two women who have um <laughs> written about feminism a lot on on our site uh even <laughs> And yet at the same time, I think that, you know, we were both interested in this book because we both like all these actors a lot. And we and not only do we like these actors, we like that there's something about that reputation that's intriguing to us, which I, I will say, having read this book, um, I did really pick up on uh, how much shit their wives went through uh, to the yeah. point where it was actually really depressing to read about their marriages falling apart because you just... 
you just really felt for these women. I mean, like they they were mostly um, being told to to stay at home and, and wait around for their drunk husbands who then just wouldn't return for weeks to months to whatever. I mean, like Oliver Reed especially would just go off and like, you know, he would sword fight with somebody or like... I would I would be like so relieved that he was gone. <laughs> right. I mean, if I was Oliver Reed's wife, I'd be like, oh my God, I'm going to go fuck the pool boy and like enjoy i'm gonna read jurassic park because oh it's quiet in here finally thank god <laughs> like he just sounds like such an overgrown child i guess she probably wouldn't fuck the pool boy but she should have well i mean so that's the thing is that like this book is full of these these stories that are told really charmingly and then when you stop and think about it they're all really horrendous <laughs> never mind <laughs> that all you know alcoholism is is a serious issue for sure and and these guys i mean really like through all of them three out of the four drank themselves to death uh literally i mean oliver reed died at the bar yeah in Malta. Uh, and, and then peter o'toole <laughs> yeah. is he lived to be to be in his 90s but i mean did you look at him <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> But but here's the thing. I mean, like the, this book is essentially it's male privilege incarnate, and and that's what the concept of hell raises. This is this whole book is boys will be boys, and Robert Sellers clearly touches upon the negative aspects of this. But at the same time, there's nothing in this book that's about he he's never pointing a moral finger at these guys. Like that's kind of up to you right. to <laughs> to pick up on. Uh, whether you care or not, there's actually even times where I, fe- I felt that the the women in the in the lives of all of these people or other men, even friends, were being like sort of dismissed as as naysayers or uh, you know not fun or something. And it's like, no, this is pretty bad. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. So it's just sort of interesting, especially in 2019, for for us to kind of go back and think of it. It's it's funny because you mentioned like these things being presented in sort of a charming way. And I wonder this could just be me being at the age I'm at, but I didn't, they were presented in a charming way and I didn't for a second read any of them as charming because I think I'm, you know, I, I also am someone who I've never actually been drawn to the bad boys, quote unquote. I always wanted to be a bad boy you know so i liked peter o'toole because <laughs> because he was so fragile i loved lawrence of arabia i love flippy little wrists and his you know bright blue eyes and he just very very feminine <laughs> man <laughs> except that he's like six two <laughs> very very pretty sort of guy the hearing about him being like a bad boy was a little bit of a surprise to me not not when I was reading Hellraisers, because at that point I did, but when I was first told, like, oh yeah, Peter O'Toole, this, you know, womanizing. I guess I assume anyone who's good looking is going to be a womanizer. Um, and I actually don't have a moral issue with promiscuity, which essentially what womanizing is. Um, There's more to that. Right, right. I don't, I don't have an issue with someone having any kind of sex that is thrown their way. I don't. Um, I have more of an issue of people being dishonest. So, and I imagine that ties into, that's the subtext of womanizing, is that they're lying to someone or they're lying to the women and they're lying to their wives and they're, you know, having people lie for them. If someone was just, you know, George Clooney being single up into his 50s and always never like, oh, that he's probably such a womanizer. I was like, yeah, he's probably having a lot of sex with a lot of people because look at him. Why wouldn't you? So I wasn't surprised with that with Peter O'Toole. But hearing about him being like 
a rowdy sort was a little bit of a surprise to me. Oliver Reed, yeah, of course. Yeah, well, Oliver Reed, he had a tattoo. I found out from this book he had a tattoo of uh, an eagle's head on his shoulder. Shoulders. And he got two eagle claws on his penis so that if someone saw the one on his shoulder, he would say, you want to see where it's perched and then whip out his dick, which he used to do all the time anyhow to men and women just for fun. Because apparently it was huge, but he got one upped one day in a bar. Um, <laughs> you, you, it's funny that you mentioned that you were attracted to Peter O'Toole like as a person, as an actor, because of his perceived r- vulnerability, which is like, that's the other thing, is that to read this book now, you realize that there that the whole concept of Bad Boy and Hellraiser and all of this stuff it's just vulnerability you know it's 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 just arguably that they couldn't be vulnerable and so you know they had they were too manly to do anything else but get pissed drunk and fight each other and throw chairs through windows and in a weird way to me that is almost rebelling against masculinity because they're embracing it to its utmost it's like it's unconsciously exposing the insanity because <laughs> like you can't function. Like, you know, if, if you're acting the right. way that these guys are acting, they literally killed themselves doing this. Uh, and for what? Right. Even Richard Harris has that quote where he's like, I, I, I don't even remember like an or was it Burton? That's the thing. They're all interchangeable. They don't remember large swaths of their own lives because they were so drunk. Right. To me, it, it reminds me of like sort of, I feel like this is a very male adage, but like the whole fighting for peace is like fucking for virginity. But it's like all of these guys are womanizing for insecurity. <laughs> <laughs> and while I, I agree with that, because I think the root of a lot of insane behavior um, is insecurity and, you know, feeling vulnerable and not knowing what to do with it. I think... It's not, for me, it's not a rebellion against masculinity because A, it's so very accepted. It was so sort of like shrugged off. And when you see what I do think the the book does a good job of portraying is when you see how many people take care of them, you know, it's almost like it, to me, it's, it's not rebelling against masculinity because it's almost just like they are they are becoming more childlike. So many people took care of all of their crap, cleaned up their messes, that if they got in trouble, someone else got them out of it. And if someone was like, if someone was just a, a kind of crazy dude and faced all his consequences and sat in jail when he had to sit in jail and cleaned up his shit after he vomited everywhere, like whatever it was, I don't, to me it's just, they just seem like big children just these big overgrown children. And I'm I'm an adventurer and an explorer and someone who really loves to get into trouble. Maybe not now that I'm You know what? No, as I say it, I'm yes, I am I enjoy doing sort of wild things and blah blah blah, but it comes to a point where they they have such a hubris. You know, they're breaking things because they know they can get away with it. They are throwing chairs through windows because somebody's going to pay for it. It's not even like some scrappy people, you know. I don't know. It just it just felt to me like the more money these, these guys got, the more they could just indulge themselves in being giant children. Um, and again, Harris is actually... I, I found Harris to be an interesting character because he did kind of come around to have some insight towards the end because two women he loved left him after years of marriage going like, you're not worth it. Like this isn't, I don't want to deal with this anymore. And one of them was considerably younger. 
they were married for seven years. Uh, she He was famous when they got married. So part of it is like, you know, she was someone who knew him and was, was attracted to him as an actor. And then, you know, even she couldn't, the, the veneer of, of who he was wore so thin. So I do think a lot of like bad boy images and a lot of that, you know, it is a very quintessential thing that's the bad boy, the rebel. Um, but a lot of times guys like that, it just, it doesn't make me think that they're rebels because they're just kind of doing what like little boys are allowed to do. There are, they're just big little boys. Um, that's, isn't that, the, that's the whole thing. That's the whole, like the, the decade where men could be men. And it's like, you mean like, right. like, like 12 year old boys? I mean, like, it's ridiculous. <laughs> and it's so funny how much the whole boys will be boys thing. It's like literally, literally. Right. So it's so weird to look back on this. And I agree. I mean, they're definitely, none of these guys were consciously, rebelling against masculinity i just think like to the point where it's like they bought into it so hard that they're just repelling people from it <laughs> right i know i i see your point and i actually it's kind of like you know what i was saying with the homoeroticism in australia where it's like there was which is an article on backdashrow.com right where it's like it almost folded in on itself and became you know this more masculine beast of like well you could fuck anything you needed to fuck because you gotta fuck so it's like there is that idea of them just going like what is masculinity masculinity is doing whatever you want here we go Um, that just makes me think of the michael ian black joke about like I am so much man a woman isn't enough man for me Mike Lee in black. Now there's my kind of man. <laughs> oh, baby. Um, how do we view the past knowing what we know today? You know what I mean? Like, and I feel like this is coming up over and over again now, with especially with hashtag Me Too era, which is um, a cause I'm super down for, actually. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm loving it. I'm loving uh, all these guys getting their comeuppance. Um, but, you know, how do we how do we look at this? It's because it, it's kind of... A lot of these guys, as you mentioned, kind of they they did as they aged, uh, changed or tried to change or at least had remorse to a degree about what they had done. Certainly of its time in the sense that I don't think any of them actively regretted the acts individually. But a lot of it, too, it's like it seems like these guys were just buckling under peer pressure. <laughs> you know, as you said, it's like it's not even like. It, like I don't know it's like the what what is the definition of masculinity it's like peer pressure depression and fear <laughs> you know it's like yeah well and that's I I had brought this up to you and it's a, a little sort of snippet at the end of the book that says that I completely disagree with 100% and Robert Sellers come fight me cuz like no this is not correct but it said uh that like these lads were all just doing it for fun. They weren't drinking because they were sad. They weren't drinking because they were in pain. They were just having fun. They just liked to drink. No, nobody drinks cases and cases of vodka in a month because they're having a good time. That is, you know, I know they're British and I know it's a whole world of alcoholism, but it's still like, you can't convince me that any of these people were just doing it for a laugh. And I know I was saying Peter O'Toole, was able to quit. He was the only one who really was able to like step away from it. Um, and you know, he, he drank a little, they were filming a movie in Russia or something and someone put vodka in his tea and he, he was sober at that point. He was like, Oh, well, you know, when in Rome sort of thing. So, okay, fine. 
but he he actually when a doctor was like look you're gonna die he stopped drinking richard burton sounds immensely sad he sounded like someone who was in a lot of pain and richard harris kind of came out as someone who was like willing to learn so i do think that these people were medicating themselves i (laughs) oliver reed who knows fuck him but like i (laughs) i all i mean 90% of drug use, and this is just a statistic I made up, but like 90% of drug use is self-medication. It's people, even when people are drinking and having fun, it's because it does quiet something in their head. And, you know, I'm, I'm an advocate of drug use. I'm, I think that, you know, if you are able to find a way to live, (laughs) I was going to say live health, healthy, um, I mean, mentally healthy, if like, if drugs work for you, if you're able to like, to have a good time with them, and that's great, then you should. Um, if you're someone who's drinking a case of vodka in a month, alone, by yourself, in your house, just sitting there pounding vodka, it's, you can't convince me that that person is happy. And I think the core of Hellraisers that I wish had been sort of brought up a little more, because clearly the author doesn't agree, is is the pain that these people were in. Now, I will give Oliver Reed... Um, There's a story about him and his brother being molested by their nanny uh, when they were younger. So I will give him that, that it is possible he was also in pain or sort of unable to come to terms with something. Well, he didn't. Yeah, he didn't. uh, He thought it was great. Yeah, right. He and it's that's that's another it's like that was something that had to be sort of parsed out with like the Lori Maddox story when she was talking about having sex with David Bowie and Jimmy Page where it's like, well, if someone's a victim, but they don't feel like a victim, have they been, oh, you know, so there's a lot of things that we don't have answers for. Um, yeah, Oliver Reed, it sounded I, like, you know, he really, um, it was totally peer pressure. He he would claim himself that he was not an aggressive guy. And yet people like the, the reason he had that scar on his him. face is that some guy just came up to him in a bar and smashed a bottle over his head because he said, you're a punk. <laughs> You know, just out of the blue um, to the point where then he was just bleeding profusely on his face, you know, like he couldn't even get a cab or something. There's this horrible story. But so what do you do at the point where everyone is actively trying to fight you because you've told the world that you love fighting or you at least project or you play characters uh, in movies that are always just jerks? I mean, like to me, it's funny because I think about there's so many actors who if I saw them on the street, I would be like, I hate you. Like, I would at least, like, want to, especially, like, you know, I think that was what was happening to the the kid that played Joffrey on Game of Thrones. Um, Oh, my God. Yeah, people come up to him and they're like, oh, like, I hate you. I'm so happy you're dead or something. And it's like, you know, thankfully, I have not. um, I have have encountered actors where I wanted. My impulse was to do that. But, like, I have never done that to somebody. Um, you know, but it's so... But she did walk right past Michael Shannon and didn't even bother to kidnap him for me. So thanks, Jenna. I like Michael Shannon, though. I I just stared at him a little bit. But, um, (laughs) you know, so for Oliver Reed, it's like, I kind of don't blame him because he sort of got stuck in a loop, it sounds like. And then he was drinking and then he couldn't, like, I mean, he was a, he's like a true alcoholic in the sense that you know it was like just he was drinking so that he could be social and unfortunately his social situations ended up being like 
him taking, you know, vomiting all of his insecurities, like, you know, like whipping his dick out because he wanted to make sure he was the biggest one in the room or feeling like people, everyone loved him uh, when he was throwing chairs through windows or punching a guy, you know, so it seemed like it was just attention is kind of what he was going for. And while he was definitely the most obnoxious of the four of these guys, and I'm sure I yeah, would have like that didn't win me over. No, I, I, you know, it's I and you watched plenty of interviews with Oliver Reed, and he's a mess and an awful person. <laughs> <laughs> um, it doesn't stop me from liking his movies, unfortunately. But so that's the thing here. Here's like the heart of it is like, how do we come to terms with this stuff? Because, uh, you know, as I started to say, and then sort of lost my own train of thought is that. In this era of Me Too, here we are now, you know, having a reckoning for this type of guy. And I agree with you. Uh, what you said earlier is that at this point, if someone says something shitty, uh, then drop them, you know, uh, like what just happened to what's his face Gillis on SNL. I don't know if you were following oh, this, yeah. but this guy says a bunch of really like he, he calls it in like 2018. Yeah, he calls know, it edgy, it but like... it's straight out of the 40s. You know, it's just like totally yeah. bullshit. Like, like no, no joke, just shitty talk, whatever, if he meant it or not. Yeah, I'm like, oh, you used a racial epitaph. That doesn't, that's not edgy. It just doesn't, that's yeah, it doesn't like matter. Exactly. It's just like, you know what, it's SNL. You know how many qualified, thousands of qualified people that, that like can get that spot? You don't deserve it, you know? So, right. Uh, so I totally feel that way now. It's funny, like with the whole this this sort of reckoning for these guys. Now, on one hand, it's it's tough because I I t- completely understand people that can look back at these people and say like screw them, like <laughs> like this these right. all four of these guys were jerks. They were really nasty. They were um you know terrible to their wives, their children, uh just mostly horrible human beings to deal with. So why should I care? That's totally valid. Yeah, Peter O'Toole's daughter didn't recognize him. That's how negligent of a person he was, where it's like Peter O'Toole's daughter didn't recognize him. She was five years old, and she was like, who's this guy? Right. Who, who are you? So it's like, you know, what's the point? So for me, on one hand, I, I really like all f- these actors are all great. Like, I love Oliver Reed as an actor um, because he he is that shithead. <laughs> he just he embodies it and i and he has like just he knows how to to get under my skin in a way where i just he's like his smile when he's being a jerk is so satisfying to watch and yet again i think oliver reed was a piece of trash as a human (laughs) um so i don't know how do we come to terms with this or do we or don't we i mean like i think we both agree that if somebody who is currently alive and working is acting this way throw them in the trash heap because there's so many other talented people out there uh you know like i was just saying to a friend i was like for the snl example just because it's topical like here we are in like the golden age of you know anyone from asian descent um in comedy right from every country in asia (laughs) there is so much good like especially like uh, americans that are are doing great stand-up doing comedy writing everything you know shows so why do we need this shithead when we have so many talented people and And so but then when it when you look back at this older people like that's when i get caught because it's like here i am like i love peter o'toole (laughs) like i love him (laughs) right but i think that's so saying come to terms does sort of uh sound like it has to be an all or nothing thing and I don't think that's I also don't think everyone has to I think if someone wanted to watch 
the ruling class, let's say, because if someone told me they didn't like Lawrence of Arabia, I would probably stop speaking to them immediately. <laughs> but if they watched the ruling class and were like, I can't stand, like, I, I can just see his shitty behavior in that. I can't stand it. I can't I watch it. I love that it. movie. Fine. <laughs> I know. I was like, I love that movie. But, uh, you know, it's it's, I don't necessarily think we have to come to terms with stuff as much as we just have to provide as much context as possible so that we're not glorifying behavior, so that we're not blanking out big parts of history and just saying, you know, Oliver Reed was a great guy. What a great actor. Look at him being Bill Sykes. Doesn't everybody look terrified? You know, instead it's being like, you know why he was so good at being Bill Sykes? Because he was terrifying those children on set, literally. Like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Those kids were horrified of him. They thought he was going to murder them. So I think we can look at history and look at old works through, a, you know, a lens of today and kind of understand that people acted in shitty ways that we don't tolerate today and then continue to move forward with, like, not tolerating that stuff. And I think I would be less of a, a sort of, shrug off forgive and forget not forgive and forget obviously not forget but like i would have more issues with it if i didn't think we were in a population in flux you know it does really feel like a massive tide change is happening and there's still a lot of work to go there's still a lot of areas that you know uh, we aren't doing nearly enough um making enough headspace in but at least it is something where in the past 10, 15 years, things have really been kind of shaken. And so that almost gives us the luxury, which might not be the right word to use, but it does, it is, you know, it does kind of give us the luxury of being able to view history and know how terrible these people were and know how awful the behavior was and then still appreciate the works that came out of it. And you and I are both people who have complicated relationships with you know i you're a woody allen fan i love roman polanski like i love roman polanski's movies i love them it it bothers me so badly because they're also so female forward you know they really are they tend to be movies where i can't believe that someone has that sort of insight and then does something as terrible as like rape a 13 year old girl but <laughs> here we are I know that's the thing you know I, I totally agree with you I think that we're at this point either you know again like if someone says that they don't want to ever see a Woody Allen movie again or suddenly they can't watch Annie Hall because of of these allegations that have been around for a very long time quite frankly then fine like you know like that's totally fair to right. me Whereas for me, I do love Woody Allen, but I also think of him as Woody Allen, comma, rapist. <laughs> you know, I mean, right. Woody sure. Allen, comma, pedophile. I, you know, like, and, and so the idea of him making new movies, I'm kind of like, ah, we're good. I, I don't need new movies from Woody Allen. Um, he's been celebrated. We're not going to erase him. He's such an, uh, an integral part of cinema history whether we like it or not, you know, I mean, he's there. It's just, so it's just one of these things where I'm, I'm just sort of good with where it was. I'm good with acknowledging everything that he was. And I feel it's the same way too with like, you know, like Oliver Reed, like shithead, comma, shithead. <laughs> I mean, so what, was there some interview with him where he's totally drunk and he's, he's bitching about feminism and it's like, I've known about that for ages. Yeah. I mean, 
you know, so... It was, like, on on a show where they had... Because they cover that in the book. I think it was, like, in the 80s or something. You know, it's... He's on a show with someone who is an out and proud feminist and he like keeps calling her sweet tits or something, you know, just a real, I guess also why it is easier for me to sort of be like, okay, these things happened. They made these movies. I can watch them and enjoy them for what they were is that these dudes are dead. (laughs) (laughs) I think bringing up Woody Allen and Polanski is kind of, you know, that's almost more where the conversation is because like, oh yeah, these are guys that are still working, that are still making money, that are still getting people to be in their movies. Everyone else, all these other guys are long dead and we can sort of, again, have that luxury of being like, because that's how people used to behave. That's how men used to be allowed to behave. And even if we're lying to ourselves. Yeah, I was going to say, and then then like Harvey Weinstein (laughs) comes out and you're like, oh no, it still happens. It's it's still good, don't worry. Oh, (laughs) right. We just have a better whisper network nowadays where people like Skeet Ulrich are talking about like, yeah, when I was working for um, Dimension a lot and working for Weinstein a lot, I heard all these stories and I would just like go with my female friends to meet with him. You're like, yep, that's the best we can do, huh? (laughs) Just have a guy come along. Yeah, great. (laughs) Well, I feel like we should, we should, um, is there anything else that you want to bring up? Oh, yeah. Well, I just want to say, and Richard Burton peed inside a uh, Henry V costume because they wouldn't let him go to the bathroom. They were in the middle of doing something and told him he had to wait. So he peed inside the costume and it absorbed it and other people had to wear it. <laughs> so <laughs> I just think everyone needs to know that. Everyone needs to know that, that this book claims that Richard Burton had crystallized his spine Ugh. through alcohol. Which I'm still, I need, yeah. I feel like I need to talk to a friend that's a doctor and, and just check the science on that. But like, I'm, I'm also I know, fully believe I like, it. <laughs> I was like, I mean, I, I could see, it's almost like I couldn't see how it happened. Cause I don't know enough about putting that much liquor, you know, like that much alcohol and watching it crystallize in a body. Like I don't, I've never heard of that before. Um, but it what he wasn't even dead yet. They found it during an operation, so he was still alive, and he had crystallized alcohol around his spine. So yeah, big asterisk there. I, I I'm very, but like I I'm also like I'm fully on board. Like I'm <laughs> sure, yeah. I have to say that I mean this book in some ways it brings out like the the sort of um, double standard that I have on my own, which is probably a semi toxic. That's probably I'll say full on toxic impulse. <laughs> in that I really enjoyed reading all of their. I mean, like all of the gossipy exploits is exactly why I picked up this book, and it's what I really enjoyed reading. And it's funny because you know I can, I can one hundred percent see. You know, the I can see the appeal of boys will be boys and I can see, um, you know, the appeal of, of being this like drunk, rowdy, whatever, in the sense that they're shedding all their reservations, you know, like they're they're just living on impulse completely. And that's always been the appeal, right, is, is you know, to to not feel like you're you're being stifled by society and by rules and, and just going out there and, you know, living your craziest life. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, that's always appealing to me to a degree i think that's like why i end up enjoying movies about people on the fringes and all of this sort of thing 
But at the same time, it's like, you know, this is only so it's only fun when you think of it as, as someone in a void. It's not fun when you think of all of the people around them that had to deal with them. <laughs> right. And I I'm someone who that certainly appeals to me as well, because I'm literally someone who has to live their craziest life. There is no other option. Um, I can't, you know, I, I couldn't even get a day job. It drove me crazy. So I understand the, that sort of, uh, the almost fetishization of people just being able to live very freely. But that does also bring me back to like, these guys kind of didn't though. They, in, they were miserable. They were hemmed in by themselves. They, you know, that's like a lot of the subtext that I wish the book had brought up more is that they were stuck in these destructive cycles of behavior and they were, they were terrible to other people and blah, blah, blah. But even to themselves, I think they could have had, again, Peter O'Toole's a funny one. Cause it, you know, the other ones really couldn't stop drinking. They couldn't, they couldn't be happy on their own. They couldn't find a way to be, they always had to be doing something that was such a distraction that you just, I, the entire time reading it, I kept wondering like how much pain these, these people were in, not, not Oliver Reed, but the rest of them. <laughs> Cause it, to me, that just doesn't, it doesn't even sound fun. I, at some of them, like in the beginning when they're kind of young, it sounds, cause that's what you do when you're young, right? It's like, you try to climb into people's windows, you run around, you do kind of stupid stuff. And then they're getting older and older and it just felt desperate. You know, it didn't feel like this, this good time Charlie stuff anymore. It just felt like sad old men not knowing how to take the next step in life. Um, well, that comes back to but, something I feel like I, I, you know, was, was like the main lesson of, of becoming an adult was that it's a choice. Right. <laughs> That's something I feel like it comes up so often where I'm like, oh, yep. Yeah. Here you go. It's like the people that never grew up, you know, like they didn't have to, like they were celebrated for being wild and crazy teens. And then they turned 50, <laughs> you know, it's like, right. <laughs> but they turned 50 when they hit 35 because, yeah, well, you know, <laughs> can't live too long on that lifestyle. But, well, I feel like yeah, I feel like we have to end um, this episode on listing our favorite Hellraiser between <laughs> Richard Burton, Richard Harris, Peter O'Toole, and Oliver Reed, and then our favorite movies for all of these guys. I mean, I think we're the same for Peter O'Toole. Yeah, I was like, I if if people don't know by the end of this that my number one pick is Peter O'Toole, <laughs> there's no hope. Um, and, and Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah, I, you know, I, yes, absolutely. Um, I do have to say, and I was surprised as anyone, I, when I saw the ruling class for the first time, which at this point was only like five or so years ago, um, I was blown away with how much I liked. I never thought I would see Peter O'Toole in a role that I liked more than Lawrence of Arabia. Um, I, I was like stunned that, I guess... <laughs> He's kind of gay in both, so maybe that's... So I was like, he wasn't as gay in the ruling class, and then I was like, yes, he was. Oh, my God, um, Vern, because that's 100% my choice for Peter O'Toole, and I feel like we are like... <laughs> All right, I'll take Lawrence We are like so same, like, same person. Samesies. Actually, I was going to say the ruling... I love the ruling class. Love the ruling class. I think of I think of quotes from the ruling class, like, also every other goddamn day. <laughs> I also got to say, in Lawrence of Arabia... Please, please. 
say no more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I also like it's not as good as those two movies, but don't sleep on the stunt man. I haven't seen that. That movie is very good. You will like it. He plays a sadistic director. <laughs> oh. Um It's very meta. I will say that I do it's later Peter O'Toole for sure. Uh, so sometimes it's hard to be like, I love this movie because he's rough to look at. But I was a big fan of Venus. It's definitely not my favorite Peter O'Toole, but I did enjoy that movie. I thought it was, I thought it had um, a lot of weird heart, you know, where you're not like, oh, this is so heartwarming, but you are watching two uh, unlikely characters form a very close friendship. Uh, so... I'd also throw that one in. Oh, I haven't seen that. Look, we both have homework after this episode. I know, right? You gotta go watch some Peter O'Toole movies. How about Richard Burton? Maybe. I <laughs> uh, I feel like I have to look up. Hold on. I Because I was like, I can't even. I can think of a Richard Harris one because it's a movie that I know you didn't love that much. But right, I what, what, Richard it, Harris, but... Real, what was your choice? Okay. The Red Desert. I love that movie. I just rewatched that. Yeah, Antonio. Did you really? I recorded. Uh, you I know, well, love that movie. Sorry, why do you love it? Why do I love it? I well, first of all, it is kind of a female anxiety movie, um, and I love. I do love Italian movies. I love those. I'm such a sucker for those like '60s foreign movies where people talk about life and love, and nobody really comes to any conclusions. Um, I also grew up very close to a power plant. And a lot of the Red Desert has to do with industrial landscapes and backgrounds and people standing in front of wires, you know, like the sort of encroaching artificial world onto the natural world. And I grew up in a town that the we have we have these four, they're still there, these big four stacks that are the uh, fourth worst polluting power station in the Northeast. And we painted them red and white. So now they're like part of the town. They're in when people draw pictures of Northport, which happens pretty frequently. The stacks are included. They're an icon in the town. They are a monument. And they're still pumping out poisonous gas. And they're like three miles from my parents' house, you know. So it's, I loved the Red Desert for that. Where it's this, they do sort of walk around in landscapes of, of energy, you know. Um. But yes, I was a huge fan of that movie. I saw it at the Castro, and I'd never heard of it. And I was like, oh, this movie. <laughs> I, I rewatched Red Desert really recently, and I actually loved it like way more than when I first watched it. So I can I can wholeheartedly recommend that as well. But I'd say my, my choice for Richard Harris is probably Camelot. <laughs> sure, yeah. Love it. I can see. Fun movie. Yeah, Camelot's, I mean... And it's, you know, that's kind of an endearing one. There's a lot of versions of Camelot, and it's always, I love the soundtrack. The soundtrack's so good. And I also will say that I was in Limerick, Ireland a year ago, and I found a statue of Richard Harris <laughs> dressed as King Arthur, <laughs> and it was very exciting. Yeah, It's like go. right next to like, I don't know, deals and things or whatever. It's like, it was like, you know, like a dollar store. <laughs> <laughs> right right <laughs> um richard burton i have to admit i actually haven't seen enough richard burton movies like i've seen a handful but they're not i i don't i don't like um who's afraid of virginia wolf i don't like it oh yeah and 
that was I I did look it up because I was like I have to and I um I realized I like the longest day so that's that would be my Richard Burton pick and I didn't even get to Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf I like that one enough but I saw it when I was young and I feel like I might like it more now as sort of uh an examination of people like destroying each other those that does seem to be my thing so but yeah I've it never it was never one of my favorites I never cared that much about Elizabeth Taylor either so I was it's just it's so mean I mean and, and you're right it is it is about people tearing each other apart but my my thing is I just get tired it's like it is as exhausting as having an argument <laughs> Right, right, sure, absolutely. I would say from him, I would, I probably just, I would go classic. I would go look back in anger. It was his big breakthrough movie, and it he plays a real jerk, <laughs> um, and he does a great job in it. So uh, you know, classic British film, kitchen sink drama. Um, yeah. And then what about old Ollie? The Brood for me. I'm a huge fan of David Cronenberg. Uh, the Devils would be a close second for sure, but. I the brood I really love that movie I really love body horror I love the the idea of people manifesting things on their body because of of anger and trauma and you know I don't think it's too far from the truth in in a lot of ways so the brood for me just I've seen it so many times and every single time I'm like I love this movie man Oliver Reed is, it's an 80s movie. It's like very early 80s. So it's not even like he's old enough to be a grizzled old guy. He's sort of right late middle age. And he looks like he has a sea turtle underneath his sweater the whole time. He's such a like a, he's just so like big and bloated that he just, it looks uncomfortable. But he's great. He's like this kind of, you can't tell if he is being a manipulative, terrible person. He's a psychoanalyst that is like kind of pushing this new form of therapy ahead. And then he does seem to know when he's doing something wrong and he tries to set it right at some point. And, um, but he really, he doesn't have to act a whole hell of a lot. He does. You're right. He just kind of has like, as they would say, a cheeky smile, you know, so you never really trust him. Cause you're like, look at that. Look at his smile, though. Nobody's smiling like that because he's telling the truth. Like, get out of here. Not even like Peter O'Toole <laughs> cheeky where you're like, oh, you. But <laughs> Yeah, I would say my favorite Oliver Reed movie. I mean, it's, this one's harder because he's in movies that I love. But yeah. it's like whether or not he's my favorite part of those movies. Like, I love The Devils and I love Women in Love. Right. And Tommy, all the Ken Russell movies that he was in. And but I don't he's not the best part of any of those though he's pretty damn good in the devils but i don't know i'm trying to think and listomania he's in um probably i would say that my favorite actually my of him of his performance might have been uh the system from 1964 oh, yeah. which you can also read yeah you can also read it on our website backroad.com no it's back with a dash row.com find us on twitter at back row cine blog find us on facebook at back row cine blog p.s didn't say that in the beginning if you oh, yeah. listen to this long then please please like us we like you um <laughs> i don't like you <laughs> i don't know you might be fine as, as long as you're not oliver reed i probably like you yeah i was gonna say um 
but yeah, I don't know. All in all, um, if you're interested in any four of these dudes uh, and you want to hear some juicy gossip, Hellraisers is a very enjoyable read. There yeah. is a um, a comic version of the book, which I read and I honestly didn't like it. It is unfortunately, and I love comics and I love art, but um, they change it. They they add in this narrator. They make it kind of like the, everyone is like, you know, reliving their lives from like a sort of... Um, you know, ghost of Christmas past sort of thing. And so there's this weird narrator walking them through their lives. And I didn't, I thought that it in fact was even less um, insightful than the seller's original book. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Like I thought it actually glossed over a little bit. It glossed over even more. So I didn't love it, but it does exist. So you can check that out too. If you just hate, books and you, you need to look at something <laughs> this is already the podcast for people it's like it's the book club for people who don't want to read a book they just want to hear us talk about it so that might uh, well, really that's appeal the the basis of our entire website at this point is that we're, <laughs> right. we're watching and reading it so you don't have to <laughs> so, so you don't have to yeah i didn't i feel like it wouldn't translate great into comic book form um it doesn't need to it's already kind of talking about you know, people living like real life cartoon characters, except for Burton and, you know, kind of already being so ridiculous and outrageous, putting them into a cartoonish uh, setting is almost like too much, but it's a fast read. The Hellraiser's the non-comic. So I would say get the non-comic one anyway, because it's, I read it in like two days. So. All right. Well, thanks for listening. And uh, next time we'll, I don't know, we'll, bitch about something else right (laughs) (laughs) i'm gonna finish jurassic park tonight let's uh let's do a back row book club about jurassic park okay it's so good go read jurassic park that's that's how we should end it yep in the end jurassic park goodbye